Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Journal Podcasts, in conversation. Hi, and welcome to the August edition of the EVJ Podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. It's my pleasure to welcome onto the podcast Nicola Pasterla, a professor of equine internal medicine and dentistry at UC Davis, California. Nicola's joining us to discuss a recent review in EVJ titled Equine Coronavirus, a decade-long journey to investigate an emerging enteric virus of adult horses. Nicola, thank you very much for joining us for the uh, EVJ podcast, the August edition. I'm going to start by asking um, a very currently relevant question at the moment about coronavirus. So what types of coronavirus um, are horses susceptible to and in which parts of the world are these found? Well, thanks, thanks for inviting me to this podcast. It's, it's a great pleasure always to talk about these very dynamic and definitely relevant topic as we're dealing with other coronaviruses worldwide. So if you look at our horses, horses are very specific when it comes to coronavirus. And, and that's true for most animal species. Coronaviruses have a very, a very host-adapted and host-specific which means that the equine coronavirus is very specific for equids. And that would involve, you know, horses, donkeys, mules, and so on. Now, when, when we look at where did actually equine coronavirus originates, I, I'm not quite sure anybody knows, but what sometimes happen is, and we've actually experienced that with today's, SARS coronavirus 2 in humans is there is always occasionally a jump from one species to the next. And, and when that happens, generally the virulence of that virus changes. If we genetically look at equine coronavirus and compare that with other coronaviruses, we realize that that virus is very, very closely related to the bovine counterparts, bovine coronavirus. And one could actually assume, because horses generally have close contact to livestock, that from an evolutionary standpoint, it is possible that the equine coronavirus may actually have originated from the fairly prevalent bovine coronavirus. But again, that's just, you know, a theory. Now, if we look at the distribution, interestingly, we we truly don't know the global extent of equine coronavirus. What we know is that coronavirus was initially, well, initially for many, many decades, considered a fairly common virus that was occasionally found in falls with diarrhea. So the, that virus was always similar to rotavirus, one of the you know, top differential when a fall would be presented with diarrhea, sporadic occurrence. And, and it is only at the beginning of the 2010, coming out of Japan, that outbreak of this virus, in, not in falls, but in actually in adult horses, was reported very different in clinical presentation, I'll probably will expand on clinical presentation later on, but also different on the demographics. So going from young animals with diarrhea towards adult horses 
with more generic signs such as lethargy, anorexia, and fever. So from this report in Japan, now we know that similar outbreak have occurred in North America, but also in Europe. But I would say, and I I would actually state that wherever adult horses can be found and wherever there is movement between horses, so we're not looking at close population of horses, but, but wherever there is in and out in horse population, we can expect equine coronavirus to be present, to be transmitted. Now, not every population will be susceptible. And there's really something novel with this virus that we have seen over the past decade is that what we see today, that equine coronavirus seems to cause clinical disease and outbreak in adult horses which is a slightly different entity to what we used to see before 2010. Now, the question that always arises, is it an emerging virus? Did the virus change is its uh, susceptibility? And we see that sometimes the viruses that are found in falls will not cause clinical disease in adults. The opposite is less frequent. So it's, it's, it's less frequent to see a virus that causes clinical disease more frequently in adult than in fall. So greater pathogenicity in adult versus fall. So it, it's hard to know if this virus was around before, which I'm assuming it was. We just didn't have the tool, the proper tool to detect it. I mean, many veterinarians, if you ask around, have been involved with outbreak of diseases, fever, lethargy, diarrhea, and have done all the diligence due and when able to identify a true etiology. So I'm assuming this virus was present, we just didn't have the right tools. Okay, so is there anything that acts as a reservoir for the equine coronavirus? And maybe more importantly, can this virus be transmitted to humans? That's a frequently asked question. As I mentioned earlier on, coronaviruses are extremely host-specific, and that depends a lot on the receptor that allows the virus to enter a host. All these receptors are highly variable. Now, if if we look from a genetic standpoint, equine coronavirus is really far away from any human coronavirus. If we look at the ongoing pandemic with SARS coronavirus 2, we know that from a receptor standpoint, horses are not susceptible, meaning that the receptor that allows the virus to enter the house is so different than a human one that even if the horse becomes in contact with SARS coronavirus 2, it is very unlikely that the horse will actually, that the virus will actually graft onto the host. So there's truly no evidence that horses may be susceptible, may become transiently infected, or even may be responsible for transmission of the virus. Now, if you look at other 
animals, if you look at dogs, cats, ferrets, that's slightly different. These animals have been shown to potentially acquire the virus, even develop clinical disease, and may represent a source for human beings. But as far as we know, horses do not or are not involved in today's pandemic with COVID-19 and are very unlikely to become involved in the future. Now, biology, as you know, is never black and white. Biology is always great. So there's always the possibility, there's always the risk, but I would say the risk is extremely small and I would not be worried about horses playing any role in transmitting SARS-CoV-2. Okay, you've touched on where um, the last outbreaks were seen, but when did these occur? Were they very recent or um, more, more towards 2010, as you were discussing? So I mentioned the first reported outbreaks. So the first reported outbreaks, you can actually find them in the literature that from Japan. They are dated 20, I believe 2013, um, if, if you look at these outbreaks, so these were the first reports. There is in the veterinary literature, you know, almost, you know, every, every, every two or three months, there'll be a report of, you know, first case of coronavirus in a new country. These outbreaks are still ongoing. I mean, outbreaks, now that we recognize the virus, we know that horses are susceptible. And I'm mentioning, you know, the first outbreak in Japan has been reported in North America, has been reported in various countries in Europe. So we know that this virus is circulating. We know that on a regular basis, if I look at the submission that goes through the UC Davis Molecular Diagnostic Lab, there are almost, you know, every week submission from horses with suspected coronavirus that end testing PCR positive for this virus. So we know that either sporadic cases or outbreaks are still ongoing. And they are ongoing, well, they're not ongoing, they are new outbreaks that occur, various barns, various places, various countries. Um, the good part with these outbreaks, they're generally short Lived. That's the beauty of, of viral outbreaks. They are they co- excuse me. They're coming very fast, and they affect a large population of horses generally. But they resume fairly quickly, generally two to three weeks. Now we we see if you know if we look at um, at least in the northern hemisphere, if we look at the temporal association of coronavirus in horses, and it shares a lot of similarity with what we see in cattle. That is, there is, although we see outbreak year-round, there is a greater frequency of reported outbreak or sporadic cases during the colder month of the year. And that probably relates to the virus, greater survival in a colder, more humid environment but also to some practices and demographic characteristic that we see more in the wintertime, and that is the commingling of horses, the bringing the horses into the barn, having more young stock on the ground. And I'm referring to these young stock, young 
horses as being the amplifier, not necessarily the animal that gets sick, but the animals that become infected allow the virus to replicate and potentially transmit this virus to then susceptible horses. So you touched on the different clinical signs experienced by foals and adult horses. Could you tell us a little bit about, about a little bit more about the clinical symptoms they suffer? Yes, the, the clinical entity is a difficult one, and and I think that's where a lot of veterinarians stumble over. Because if I would tell you that the majority of the horses that are infected, and we're talking about adult horses infected with equine coronavirus, will develop the three cardinal signs that are fever, lethargy, and anorexia. So if you think about these three signs, they're very, what I call, you know, generic signs. They are signs that relate to a systemic inflammatory disease. There is no specific relationship with these signs with any specific organ, which means that it's hard with these three signs, we then think, well, I think that this may be coronavirus, an enteric organism, an organism that has an affinity to the small intestine. Because every time we think about an enteric organism, we will think about GI signs or think about changes in fecal character, maybe colic. And if we look at these signs, they still happen. Colic and changes in fecal character will happen in horses infected with coronavirus. But unfortunately, they are not happening with every single horse, and they actually happen in a minority of the horses. Well, generally, somewhere between 15 to 20 percent of the horses infected with equine coronavirus will eventually end developing GI signs. So here, here is really the challenge: How do you test for an enteric organism if the horse? doesn't have enteric signs. It's the same if you compare how would you test for a respiratory virus if the horse doesn't have any respiratory signs, such as nasal discharge, coughing, increased lymph nodes, and so on. And that's truly the challenge. That's why with new information coming up and also educating the veterinarian on this topic, I always say if you are confronted with a horse or an outbreak, multiple horses, and what you end with are these very unspecific signs. You have fever, lethargy, anorexia, and you know that multiple horses are affected. Then run some blood work. The regular blood work may show abnormalities that may be compatible with a viral disease. Generally, these are changes in the total nucleated cell count with a profound reduction in the neutrophil as well as the lymphocyte count. But that, too, is not specific for equine coronavirus. If that is the case, then I always recommend the veterinarian to pull two types of biological samples nasal secretion or nasal swab to test for respiratory pathogen, but at the same time also considered equine coronavirus. So also collect fecal sample, fecal sample for the testing of equine coronavirus. So do you find the, the virus is more prevalent in particular equine populations at all? It, it pop- 
probably is. I'm assuming it probably is. However, we don't have enough epidemiological information to really answer that question. Now, I'm going to expand a little bit. I may not necessarily answer your question. If, if we look at predisposing factor, so if you look at prevalence factor that are associated with clinical disease, if you look at population of horses that have experienced outbreak, most of the time, these are outbreaks that happen in population of horses that are anything but breeding operation. So keep that in mind. Why is that, that we don't see outbreak generally at large breeding operation? No proof for what I'm going to say. So if, if I'm wrong, I'm going to deny it. And if I'm, I'm right, I'm just going to take the glory for it. But, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a matter of who, is, who are the amplifier. In, in breeding operation, and we know that equine coronavirus is, is a virus that, that is highly prevalent in young stock. So we can assume that this virus is passed between young stock and breeding stock at breeding operation, meaning that these adult broodmares or stallions are infected and reinfected on a regular basis, and they will mount a protective immunity. It's the continuous exposure or infection that prevents this animal from developing clinical signs. Now, the, to me, the, the typical outbreak generally happens at the boarding facility where you have you know, a large number of horses, they're all adult horses, and they haven't been exposed to young stock. So you can imagine and, and assume that these horses may have been exposed when they were young, but for many years now, they haven't had contact with equine coronavirus to the point that when they become infected, they are susceptible again. That's only looking at diseased animal. So every time that I hear about an outbreak, I'm involved with an outbreak, I would say nine out of 10 times that outbreak will occur in a population of adult horses that has no contact to young stock. So no breeding operation generally is linked to an outbreak. When we look at healthy horses, and, and we've been involved with a large serological study that involved more than 5,000 healthy animals across the U.S., and, and we looked at different geographic areas. What, what we found that, again, breeding animals, so animals that had a, <clears throat> well, the role, their, their job was to be um, a breeding animal, had a higher seroprevalence compared to, let's say, performance horses. And that makes you think that the virus circulated at a higher frequency in that population compared to, you know, the regular ranch or pleasure or competing horse population. Okay, so you, meant, you mentioned um, testing feces to um, look for equine coronavirus. Is this the best diagnostic test to use? And how long can equine coronavirus be detected in the feces of infected horses? The, today, the gold standard, if you kind of call it that way, to 
to detect the presence of these enteric virus, equine coronavirus, is through the testing of feces. Now, historically, that's still the diagnostic sample that used to be uh, submitted, but the technology has changed. So we went from electron microscopy to antigen capture ELISA, and, and these are still valuable diagnostic tools. They are just less sensitive than the modern molecular tools. And the other drawback of these technology, they're a little bit more cumbersome and time-consuming to perform. So today, the way a suspected case is actually supported is through the testing of feces via quantitative PCR. And if we look at the, you know, the, the detection of the organism, it's always the question, well, what does, it, what does it mean? Because there's many organisms that can be detected in sick animal, but they're also present in healthy animal. Therefore, the association becomes weaker. When, when we looked at coronavirus in the feces, and then actually that's the way we stumbled over these cases, just by accident, if you want to call it that way. We were looking at coronavirus in falls. We were ready to get, we were, we were getting ready for the falling season, and we were establishing PCR panel for enteric organism, and it, it happened that we had equine coronavirus. And when we then got confronted to this very unusual outbreak, we tested feces from these horses for every single enteric and non-enteric organism for which we had a test, and we got hit on coronavirus. So when we looked at these outbreaks, and we have looked at probably over 20 outbreaks now and looked over 300 clinically affected animals, but we also looked at animals that were part of an outbreak that remain healthy. We're looking at potential subclinical shedder, and we also looked at healthy horses that were not involved in an outbreak. If you look at sick horses, the majority of them tested positive by PCR. Kind of makes sense. If the organism is there, the organism can be detected. The detection period from the time these horses develop clinical disease generally lasts seven to 10 days. That's an average. You'll have the exception that will go longer, been reported in the literature, horses that tested positive for up to three weeks. But I would say the majority of the horses will test positive in the feces seven to 10 days after they have developed the acute onset of clinical signs. If we look at asymptomatic or subclinical horses, horses that are part of an outbreak, we will find a certain percentage, and that percentage depends on when you collect the sample, somewhere between five to 20% of horses, healthy horses, part of an outbreak, may test positive. Generally, their period of testing with a test positive is shorter. And the third population is healthy horses. So any horse that you see out there in the field that isn't involved with an outbreak, none of these adult horses test PCR positive, which means that the detection of equine coronavirus through PCR in an animal that has clinical signs compatible with equine coronavirus really supports 
the diagnosis. The other testing modalities that is available, it's less specific, is a regular cell block count and looking at the cell differential. As I mentioned earlier on, most of these horses will actually develop a reduction in the total nucleated cell count and will have a reduction in neutrophils and or lymphocyte count. And that's generally, you know, 65 to 75% of horses with clinical coronavirus infection will develop these hematological changes. But as I mentioned earlier on, these are very generic hematological changes. They may be compatible with a viral disease. It doesn't necessarily tell you what the etiology is. Now, the third possible way to diagnose this, it's more like a retrospective way, is to detect antibodies during the acute period, so on two samples, so we're doing paired serum sample during the acute phase where the animal should actually have no detectable antibodies or antibody titers that are very low. And the second sample is collected during the convalescent period at a time where the animal that has been infected should have mounted a solid immune response and should have now high to very high antibody titers. So looking at a increase, a significant increase, at least a fourfold increase in antibody titers between a acute and a convalescent serum sample would be one way to retrospectively diagnose an outbreak of coronavirus. But generally, serology is not very helpful in supporting a diagnosing while the animal is experiencing clinical signs. Are there any vaccines available um, for use against equine coronavirus? And what preventative measures would you recommend um, to prevent infection? There are no vaccines specific against equine coronavirus. There's not a killed, aggravated, modified live vaccine that contains equine coronavirus as the antigen. However, as I mentioned earlier on, the closest relative to equine coronavirus is bovine coronavirus. And there's many bovine rota coronavirus vaccine, modified life vaccine available in the livestock industry. Some of them are modified live, some of them are killed aggravated. There's actually two studies out there, one from Japan and one from our group that looked at what would happen just from a safety standpoint and from an immunological standpoint if horses are actually vaccinated with these vaccines. And what we know is that these vaccines will actually trigger a measurable antibody response. But again, we don't know what truly represents protection. So right now we know that the use of bovine coronavirus vaccine in horses, at least the two brands that were used, appears to be safe, and that's based on a small population of animals, study animals that were used. And we also know that seroconversion can be expected. However, the use of these vaccines at the present 
time is not recommended because we don't have any evidence that these vaccines could actually confer protection. So the question always arises, well, so how do I protect my horse from coronavirus? And, and the, you know, the answer is how do you protect any horse from any contagious disease? It doesn't really matter if it's a respiratory disease or if it's an enteric disease. And the answer is in good, solid, common sense biosecurity. And, and I realize it's always the same message, you know, wash your hands, cleanliness, separate horses. But the reality is it works. It works ideally when you apply it every day. And if you see at the measures that each of us is exposed to to prevent infection with SARS coronavirus 2 in this pandemic, it's working. And we're not asking horses to wear masks and wash their hooves because that wouldn't be feasible. We're, we're dealing with an enteric organism, but the principle is the same. Distance helps. Cleanliness helps. And the cleanliness is cleanliness in the environment of the horse, but also cleanliness on everybody that is involved in the husbandry of the horse, the person that feeds the person that trims, the veterinarian, the person that mocks the stall. Everybody needs to play the game. Now, there is no risk. You know, zero risk doesn't exist. It's, you know, it's what I call an occupational hazard. If you end being a horse, it's like the same, if you end being a human being, sooner or later, you will become infected with a virus. However, the outcome can be mitigated the outcome towards the rest of the population. With proper biosecurity, we can prevent disease outbreaks, but we can prevent the more severe outcome, controlling the outcome. And it goes back to educating all our clients. And I, and I realize that biosecurity is, is a huge topic, and it's generally, you know, people start rolling their eyes. If you start about biosecurity, it's this magic word. But um, what I realized is if, if, you, if you just stick with two or three very simple practices, whatever they are, whatever fits that specific facility, and you know that it will, you will have compliance from the people working in that facility, that's what we are looking at. We're not looking at the 40-page document that nobody will read. We're looking at the simple steps that everybody remembers. It's like you go to the bathroom, guess what? You're going to wash your hands. You're not going to think about wash your hands. It's, it's a normal, it's almost like a reflex. You go wash your hands and step out of the bathroom. It's very similar with, you know, our horse industry. On the other side, you could argue that, you know, it's good that people don't always comply with it. I'm going to be very sarcastic here. It's, you know, it's job security. Outbreak will continuously happen. And when, when we get involved with this outbreak and, you paddle back and they're trying to get information on what kind of biosecurity steps were implemented. I would say in the majority of the cases, and I can speak from outbreak I've been involved here in the U.S., there is absolute negligence when it comes to biosecurity. Everything that you can do wrong is done wrong because people don't generally engage in these procedures unless there is an outbreak. Now, that may well be your take-home message for us, but did you have anything you wanted to add? 
No, I would say be on the watch. This is, this is a condition that will not disappear. We may even see more of these cases, sporadic cases, as well as outbreak. It, it is important that the veterinarian is vigilant and think sometimes outside the box. If you have a single horse or multiple horses that, again, display these very generic signs of fever, lethargy, and anorexia, don't jump on the conclusion that this must be a respiratory infection with maybe no severe respiratory signs. Always think outside the box and think, well, maybe this could be coronavirus. And one of the strategies that I've used, and I'm going to finish with that, veterinarians are, you know, very aware about cost, and owners are generally frugal, and they don't like when you start spending money on a test, and then that test comes negative, and you spend money on another test. They, they want an answer fairly quickly in, in a very cost-effective fashion. What, what I generally recommend is if you get confronted to a case where coronavirus could be a differential, but still the veterinarians believe that respiratory disease may be more likely, what I recommend to do is collect two type of samples. Collect nasal secretion for the testing of respiratory pathogen. But at the same time, collect the fecal sample and submit both these tests or both these samples to the lab. Now, the veterinarian may elect to have the respiratory secretion tested first. However, if the respiratory secretion and testing negative then maybe think about coronavirus. And now that biological sample, that fecal sample, is already at the laboratory. So you don't have to go back, see the horse, collect the fecal sample, spend the money on shipping costs, and then request the testing, which, you know, is going to set you back at least 48 hours. At this instance, you know, you can call the lab and say, you remember that fecal sample I submitted and you haven't done anything? It's probably still sitting in the fridge. Would you mind testing it for equine coronavirus. That's, to me, a fairly effective way to get the sample fast to a laboratory and still have the option to test or not to test. That sounds like great advice. Um, thank you very much for giving us your time today, Nicola. My great pleasure. Great, great pleasure to be with you. And um, again, stay safe and well. And wash your hands. And wash your hands. <laughs> <laughs> wash your hands. Thanks again. Thanks again for joining us and join us in September for the next edition. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Channel podcast. More about the subjects discussed today can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash evj.